Um, as an aside, have you ever heard of Rafi's song where you have to do that? It's in my head. I'm trying to think of how it goes. No. Who wears a long hat on his head? Santa wears a long hat on his head. And it goes through all the Santa stuff. Who laughs this way? Ho, ho, ho. Santa laughs this way. Ho. And it's like, hat on head. Cha- um, sack on back. Oh. Head, and a beard that's white. <laughs> you don't know that song? Must be no. Santa. Oh, it's so good. I love that Rafi album. Okay. <laughs> but, but we digress. Yeah. Sorry about that. Welcome back to the Modern Lady Podcast. You're listening to episode 117. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lindsay. And today we are talking about the 12 days of Christmas. On the 12 days of Christmas, as the popular carol goes, our true love sends us a lot of things. But beneath all the birds and the rings, the lords a-leaping and the maids a-milking, there's so much tradition, history, and symbolism. For most of the secular world, Christmas begins to wind down after December 25th. But as we'll see in this, our first part of two episodes on the 12 days of Christmas, Christmas Day is actually just day one of when the real feasting is meant to begin. But first, this podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. How about you? Do you want more from the modern lady? Become a Patreon supporter and for just $5 a month, you will have access to extra content. Find us by going to patreon.com forward slash the modern lady podcast. You can also support the show by giving us a rating and review on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews, especially on iTunes, can really help others who might be interested find our podcast too. Your comments mean the world to us. This week's shout out goes to Ozzy Anna, who left us a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts from Australia and said, quote, Thanks so much for taking the time to create such well-researched, mindful, and beautiful content. I love listening to your podcasts as they give me an opportunity to slow down and reflect on the little joys in life and to get excited about homemaking and building a family of my own. I highly recommend this show for anyone who is looking to dig deep into what actually brings joy in life instead of living on the surface with popular culture as our main source of ideas and direction." End quote. Well, thank you so much, Ozzy Anna, for this amazing review and recommendation. We are so grateful to have heard from you and to be able to dig deep into what really matters in life with such wonderful podcast friends such as yourself. And if you would like to leave us a comment, you can do so on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com, or you can leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, where you can find us at The Modern Lady Podcast. But before we get into today's chat, Lindsay has our Modern Lady Tip of the Week. I follow a page on Facebook called Ontario Storm Watch, and frankly, I feel like this page is far more accurate in its weather predictions than any of the other sources for weather forecasting that I follow. Anyways, I noticed something funny on there. So when they're making their predictions for the next morning as to whether or not it's going to be a snow day or if there are going to be bus cancellations, they're always putting odd sayings beside the percentages. Okay, so try to picture this. There's a map of Ontario and then different areas 
are different colors based on the percentage chance of a snow day the following day. So where we live, it was a 10% chance, but the odd saying written beside the 10% said, put a spoon under your pillow. Hmm, what? For 25%, it said flush ice cubes. And for 75%, it said pajamas inside out. And after trying to ignore these weird sayings for a while, I finally decided to Google them, and it turns out that they are from old wives' tales for kids who want a snow day the next day. According to a radio interview on the subject on NPR, the guest called this ritual the P-I-O-S-U-P-S-D-R. And as a lifelong Canadian, I'm a little shocked that I'm just hearing about this now. The letters P-I-O-S-U-P-S-D-R stand for Pajamas Inside Out, Spoon Under Pillow, Snow Day Ritual. And apparently this is quite the thing in many communities. According to the website bluebirdbackcountry.com, there are seven rituals that our kids can try if they are really hoping for a snow day the next day. The oldest one is the spoon under the pillow. It doesn't matter what kind, and like with many of the rituals, it doesn't seem to make sense, but yeah, you just put a spoon under your pillow. The next one is to wear your pajamas inside out. This originated in New Jersey, and you can go the extra mile and wear your PJs inside out and backwards. This next one is from Ohio. You flush ice cubes down the toilet. This one seems pretty scientific because apparently you flush one ice cube for every inch of snow that you want. Interestingly, this next one does have a bit of history in producing snow in the Lake Tahoe region and the Vale area of Colorado. And this is just trying the traditional snow dances of the indigenous people of North America. And this next one involves a crayon. And well, where you place it depends on where you live, but it has to be a white crayon. It can be put in the freezer or under a pillow or left on a windowsill. Here comes another one with a quantitative component. You can stack pennies on the windowsill and you will get an inch of snow for every penny in the stack. And others swear by taping a quarter to the window. The final snow day ritual is to eat ice cream the evening before. And well, that's just fun no matter what. Well, first of all, I feel like there should be a limit on the number of letters in an yeah, acronym. Yeah. <laughs> At what point does it stop being an acronym? <laughs> yes. And you know how many times I tried to pronounce that as a word? I'm like, it's, I've got to be able to say that as one word. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I loved all of these. But like you, now I'm starting to realize how many winter days as a student and as a child I've wasted uh-huh. just simply wishing for That's snow right. days. I could have been <laughs> really working on this. Yeah. Yeah. I know all those wasted wishes when we could have been doing all mm. of these what seemed like really scientific things, obviously, to get a snow day the next day. Aren't you shocked that living where we live, we've never heard of these? Yeah, a little bit. And I think it's so cool. So even though I never had a chance to do it, I would love to pass it down to my kids who are homeschooled this year, so it may not benefit <laughs> them. But you tell me, Lindsay, if your kids need a snow day and we will put our pajamas on inside out that night. Sounds great. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Feasting and gifts and drinks. Oh my. Far from signaling the end of the holiday season on Christmas Day, the 12 days of Christmas traditionally start on December 25th. 
And from what we've gathered about the history and customs associated with each of these 12 days, we are quickly learning that there is a lot of fascinating and fun information to unpack here. Right, Lindsay? That's right. Now, you and I and everyone listening probably just knows the song, The 12 Days of Christmas, Mm -hmm. right? It is a classic. Everyone sings it. You hear the Muzak version in the grocery stores. It is just everywhere. Now, according to the website Vox.com, the earliest known version of the song first appeared in a 1780 children's book called Mirth Without Mischief, which, let's be real here, sounds like an awesome book, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and an original version of this book, an original edition, just sold, I think it was Sotheby's, um, at auction for $23,750. Now, you can buy, Michelle, if you'd like a copy on Amazon, a paperback copy for $20. Mm, okay, that's way more reasonable. I <laughs> yes. was like, let me count my pennies, Sotheby's. <laughs> yes, Sotheby's. <laughs> now, historians believe that this song was a type of memory and forfeits game, which tested the player's memory. And if they made a mistake, they had to offer a forfeit, which was... <laughs> just like today, always a little sneaky way to get a kiss. And so it was a way to get a kiss from one of the opponents. Now, one of the first things I noticed when writing out my notes is that the song is very, um, how should I say it? Bird heavy. Um, Mm. right. I have a bird phobia. I probably have talked about it on here and I've never really noticed that about the song in the past, but it just, yeah, really jumped out at me when I started typing out the lines of the song, Michelle. Mm-hmm. It must have turned into a really terrifying experience for you. I'm yeah, so we sorry. get to that later. You just you just wait yeah. to the pheasants. Yeah, it, it gets increasingly more scary for me. <laughs> I do love the whole game aspect of it, though, because I never thought of it that way. It's kind of like the game of like all those games you play in campfire circles or something. Mm-hmm. Like I went to the grocery store and I bought this. And then the next person has to repeat what you said and add something else. Yes. And you just keep going around the circle. This is the Christmas song version of that. I love it. Right. So back to the birds though, because I think we're going to have to repeat, like go back to the birds a lot. So there's definitely mm-hmm. a bird motif. And like with many popular songs, the lyrics have changed over the years and we'll get into this a lot, but like the birds have kind of changed sometimes over the years. Um, and we will, we're going to break it down each of the gifts as we work our way through the song. Now gifts, you say, yes, the opening of the song states that these are the gifts from one lover to another. And again, different versions have had different gift givers with the popular option involving subbing in the singer's mother's name as the gift giver. So Michelle, have you seen the articles where they total up what it would cost if you were yes. to actually give people? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's wild. It's wild. The number I got um, is from Good Housekeeping magazine, but I'm sure there's like different variations, but that number is $39,094.93. Mm. Yeah. And so I saw an article on Vox that was mm. totaling the cost and it said, it was between, it could be between $39,000 and upwards of around $170,000, which to me, I'm like, how much do French hens cost? Yes. <laughs> I, don't yeah. know. I thought it was the swans, but yeah, they always seem very oh, pricey to sure. me. Sure. All right. <laughs> Now we are going to come to the point where we discuss a very hotly debated topic. Now, 
This song made the rounds on the World Wide Web when a theory was put forth that this song was actually a secret Catholic code for teaching the pillars of the faith when the church was being persecuted in England, which lasted from 1558 until 1829. Well, is this true? The potentially untrustworthy website Snopes um, claims that this theory is not true at all, and many cite the work of a well-respected historian and Christmas carol expert named William Studwell, and I'll share his refutation. So he was quoted as saying, this was not originally a Catholic song, no matter what you hear on the internet. If there was such a catechism device, a secret code, it was derived from the original secular song. It's a derivative, not the source. Now, personally, I couldn't just accept that without looking into it a little bit more, because one of the things that drew me to this topic for an episode Mm. was the memory of that post, right? That you and Mm -hmm. I have seen circulated, everybody's seen circulated on Facebook. So I did Google it a little bit more. Now, before we go any further, I think we'll just right now go over what those gifts are supposed to be code for. And then we will talk again more about those in detail later. Right. But we might as well say what the theory is. Mm -hmm. So the first one would be the partridge in a pear tree. And that's believed to be Jesus himself. The two turtle doves would be the old and new testaments, the three French hens, faith, hope, and charity, or the three wise men, uh, Mm -hmm. the four calling birds, the four gospels and, or the four evangelists, five golden rings, the first five books of the old Testament, six geese a laying the six days of creation, seven swans a swimming, the seven gifts of the Holy spirit or the seven sacraments, eight maids of milking, the eight beatitudes, nine ladies dancing, the fruits of the Holy spirit. There are more than nine, but they kind of put some together. Um, <laughs> 10 Lords a leaping, the 10 commandments, 11 pipers piping the 11 faithful apostles and 12 drummers drumming the 12 points of doctrine in the apostles creed. And Michelle, it just seems mm. so nice, right? So convenient. So I sweet. Know. But is I it know. all a lie? Oh, I feel like that's a hypothetical question you're asking me <laughs> or a rhetorical question. <laughs> and I know the answer, but I, yeah, you just go on and then I'll okay. comment. <laughs> all right. All right. So the first person to suggest this potential secret hidden meeting was a Canadian hymnologist named Hugh McKellar back in 1979. Another scholar said that this theory has merit, but likely cannot ever be proven true. Now, you and I could go, that means it can't be proven false, though, either, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, according to an article on the website CatholicNewsAgency.com, written by a very reputable priest, the late Father Calvin Goodwin of the FSSP, who died this past year, uh, he said Jesus is the gift giver, giving this gift on his birthday, and Jesus himself is the partridge in a pear tree, a bird known to protect its young by pretending to be injured, drawing the predator away from the nest. Now, there is another article on another reputable Catholic website, EWTN, that claims the Catholic origins of the song and its hidden catechetical meaning. But then more recent articles, because those ones are from a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And this one is from another reputable Catholic website, Ascension Press. And this one clearly states that as much as we'd love for this to be true, it just isn't. Melissa Keating is the author of this article, and she explains that none of the things being, quote, secretly taught here are in any opposition to Anglican church teaching, um, the Mm. Church of England at the time. So if those things are indeed a secret message, they would appeal to Anglicans just as much as they would have to Catholics. Now, Keating goes on to say, 
And I think that you and I will both agree with her here that even though this was never the intended purpose of the original song, it does not mean that we can't use it now for this purpose. It can be a fun way to teach our children some catechesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that first quote you were talking about, it's a derivative. It's mm-hmm. just not the source, right? That's so right. there, there is nothing wrong with ascribing those uh, qualities to each of the 12 days and their gifts. And in fact, it is actually a really good way to help memorize and to teach kids important parts of the faith, of the Christian faith, which is awesome. But I will admit that I was also a bit deflated <laughs> when mm-hmm. I was researching and came across it. I think I actually wrote an Instagram post about this last year during the Christmas season (laughs) because I I was so enamored with the idea. Um, But I mean, yeah. So in the spirit of being, I guess, intellectually honest, (laughs) we will just have to concede that that makes a lot of sense. But I just really loved envisioning those, um, you know, those secret Christians or the secret (laughs) Catholics sidling up to one another and whispering like, hey, psst three French hens. You know what I mean? (laughs) Wink, wink. (laughs) It's like, oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. No, I think the greatest lesson in all of this just harkens back to what you said in the introduction. So regardless of the meaning, it, it is a song that does teach, regardless, the Catholic belief that Christmas starts on Christmas Day, that it doesn't mm-hmm. end on Christmas Day, that there are 12 glorious days of feasting, of merrymaking. And so that is what we're really excited to dig deeply into today. Hmm. Okay. And So by way of housekeeping items here, as we started researching, we realized (laughs) that once again, there is a lot of information. So Uh this is part one of two parts. And we're going to tackle the first six days uh, this week. And then next week, before we break for the, the Christmas holidays ourselves, we will finish out with the last six days and the Feast of Epiphany. That's correct. And this gives you guys plenty of time to pull together a 12 days party if you want, right? That mm-hmm. I've been meaning to do it for like five years now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> five years, I have not Same. done it. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm sure you have plenty of room on your to-do lists. I'm sure exactly. nobody is feeling a little bit of a pinch of time. And so this is a little bit of homework you can take on. Yeah. Right. Just a little bit. <laughs> Okay, so Lindsay, let's just get right into it with the first day of Christmas. Break it down for us. Well, the first day is December 25th. And on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. This line from an article on the birds of this piece is from National Geographic, and it had me giggling. It said, possibly the most famous avian in this Christmas ditty is the partridge. Okay, so I touched on this already in the opening, but if we want to apply the Christian symbolism, Jesus is the partridge and the pear tree is the cross. Today, the first of the 12 days is Christmas, and it makes sense when we draw the comparison between the partridge and Jesus. Now, this is the first of the 23 birds that the recipient will receive over the course of the 12 days of Christmas. And once again, I can't stress this enough, receiving one bird, let alone 23, is my worst nightmare. (laughs) Okay, so do partridges live in pear trees? Yeah, no, they don't. Uh, There are 92 known species of partridges throughout the world, and they are ground dwellers who live in grassland regions. Okay, but would a partridge ever find itself in a pear tree? Again, no. Would they eat pears? Nope. So is there any real life (laughs) connection between partridges and pear trees? Again, no. But there is a connection between pears and Christmas. 
pears can stay fresh and delicious for a long time. And being picked in August, with pear harvest season lasting about four weeks, they can still be absolutely delicious at Christmas. Now, there is another ancient tradition involving fruit trees and Christmas. There was the belief that wassailing around a fruit tree could aid in fertility. Now, Michelle, you might touch on this a little bit too, but I've got to mm-hmm. describe what wassailing is or wassailing, depending on how you, yeah, how you say that word. I said wassailing. Wassailing. Right. Yeah. It is spelled like wassailing, but we, I think mm-hmm. we say here we come a wassailing. So I'm... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> tomato, tomato. Wassailing, wassailing. <laughs> wassailing. <laughs> There are two types of wassailing. Uh, there is your house visiting wassail and the orchard visiting wassail. <laughs> now for house visiting, you go door to door and share drinks pre-COVID, am I right, from a wassail mm-hmm. bowl and exchange little gifts. Today, caroling has replaced this old custom. And for orchard visiting, you go through an orchard reciting incantations and singing to the trees in order to produce good fruit. And again, young maidens would do this in the hopes of increasing their own fertility too. Wassail comes from the Norse greeting of Veshel, Veshel, um, which mm-hmm. is basically a wish for the other to be in good health. Mm. So back to the pear tree. There is folklore that claims that a young maiden was to walk backwards three times around a pear tree on Christmas morning, and then if she gazed into its branches, she might see the image of her future husband. So what about pears as gifts? Well, perhaps you've encountered this tradition already. The creme de la creme of Christmas pear gift giving comes from a company founded by two brothers called Harry and David. In 1934, they included a box of Royal Riviera pears in their famous gift tower. And ever since then, their box of pears is a treasured gift to give and receive. The pears are lovingly snuggled in a box together and one is wrapped in gold foil. An extra special touch showing these pears are fit for a king. So how lovely would it be to give a box of Harry and David pears to someone on Christmas Day? Now being Christmas Day... The menu is usually pretty traditional with a turkey being the bird of choice, or perhaps you roast a goose. If you'd like to do something unique, something in honor of the 12 days of Christmas, you could make Nigel Slater's pork and partridge pie. Or if you'd like to stick with the pears in his Christmas Chronicles cookbook, which I will reference throughout this episode, and it is a must have for any Christmas loving cook, you could make his pear marmalade or pear and pickled radish, or perhaps his pears, clove, and orange granita for dessert. Oh my goodness. Wow. Okay. And that's just Christmas Day. That's That's, just day one. Right. On top of the nativity and Santa Claus and whatever else you're doing that day. (laughs) (laughs) But what a great conversation starter at your Christmas dinner that night, because Mm -hmm. Santa is such a a tired conversation starter. Yeah. You can just throw out pears and the whole history of pears in Christmas time. And I'm sure no one has has heard the extent of the history (laughs) that goes on between pears and Christmas. But you know what? I was really pleased as you were talking to realize that I I was on top of this last year already. Because for one of the Christmas desserts that I made for dinner, I made Mimi Thorson's Um, I guess, baked pears with melted chocolate drizzled on top. And it was 
so delicious. So if you're looking for a pear dessert, but like a warmed pear dessert, mm-hmm. that one is for sure a winner. And it is apparently very on point for Christmas. So Michelle, what happens on the second day of Christmas? So on the second day of Christmas, our true love is giving us two turtle doves. And again, as a reminder of the secret Christian code that I may not let die, um, (laughs) is (laughs) representing the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. So I know how much you love birds, Lindsay. So Mm -hmm. I did take it upon myself to look into what the turtle dove meant to people living in medieval times. Mm -hmm. And according to a website called bestiary.ca, a turtle dove is known for its loyalty to its mate. Mm -hmm. So it mates only once in their life. And if their mate should die, not only do they never partner again with another turtle dove, but apparently they also never sit again on anything green. So. I know. This is according to the bestiary.ca website. So they're faithful to the end, I think, is the sentiment here. So in medieval times, this was seen to represent the Holy Church, which has remained faithful to Christ after his death. So, you know, of all the verses of this carol, given the significance then of the turtle doves, this seems like the most likely day you'd want to give your true love a gift, really. Mm. You know, according to goodhousekeeping.com, they recommend a really sweet, delicate rose gold dove choker necklace that Mm -hmm. they've linked to on Amazon. And I love that little symbolism, you know, as another kind of nod to a sweet, affectionate gift, especially if it is going to be one of a romantic nature, really linking it to the specific verse of this Christmas carol at Christmas time. Now for food, you could try your hand, as womansday.com suggests, at homemade turtles candies. You know those chocolate caramel mm-hmm. cluster candies? They're so delicious. Or let's be honest, you could just go buy some at the <laughs> store and probably enjoy them just the same. Uh, or if you're so inclined, you could just swap the candies for a cocktail and enjoy a chocolate turtle martini. <gasps> yes, get Do this. tell. This is, yeah. <laughs> This is from a website called monin.com, which includes vodka, dark rum, toffee nut syrup, dark chocolate sauce, and half and half cream. And you pour that over ice. So that sounds delicious. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you can toast, you can cheers to the second day of Christmas. Now, uh, going into a little bit of what else is going on on the second day of Christmas, it actually has a lot to do historically with care of the poor and looking to those in need. The 26th of December is the Feast of St. Stephen, St. Stephen's Day, and he is a martyr. He was the first martyr, according to church tradition, and a martyr is someone who is killed for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. So most of what we know about St. Stephen comes directly from the Acts of the Apostles in the Bible. He's in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And he was one of the first ordained deacons in the church. And the deacons were ordained to oversee care of the widows and the less fortunate, as the teaching charism of the apostles, who were the first bishops, began to grow. And they, they couldn't really keep up with both of these duties just by themselves. 
So St. Stephen, um, as a deacon, was apprehended and charged by the Jews in the Sanhedrin for blasphemy in proclaiming Jesus Lord and God. He so enraged the authorities that they ultimately stoned him to death. So this is also where we first meet a zealous rabbi named Saul of Tarsus, who oversaw St. Stephen's martyrdom but who subsequently experienced his own spectacular conversion on the road to Damascus and became St. Paul, one of the greatest Mm -hmm. saints in the church. So St. Stephen might also sound familiar because he and his day is the one on which the carol Good King Wenceslas takes place. So this is like I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a carol within a carol, right? It's Inception Carol. (laughs) So, good King Wenceslas once looked out on the Feast of Stephen, is how the song goes. And King Wenceslas saw this poor man gathering winter fuel. And so he calls to his own servants to look to the man's needs, and they give him food and drink. So King Wenceslas is actually based on a real person, and he is a Catholic saint in his own right. It's Saint Wenceslas. And he was the Duke of Bohemia in the early 1900s. So, you know, even though his actual feast date is in September, his famous Christmas carol calls to mind this mentality of St. Stephen's charity being a deacon, having to look particularly to the needs of the orphans and the widows during the early church. And it also highlights the care for the poor. And the carol ends with, Therefore, Christian men, be sure, wealth or rank possessing, ye who now will bless the poor shall yourselves find blessing. End quote. Okay, why am I crying? I'm actually crying. I think. Are you really? Like, yes. Oh, I think it's so isn't it sweet. so nice? Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> I never really thought about that one before. Because I just didn't think, what kind of name is that? <laughs> and St. Wenceslas is up in heaven going, Lindsay, Lindsay. Yeah. <laughs> Lindsay. I'm so on brand. Yeah. Oh. You know, and I was so fascinated to kind of see how we can still relate that Christmas carol and St. Stephen and St. Wenceslas, um, though you may not maybe have made the connection beyond the shared date of December 26, mm-hmm. is actually considering the poor at Christmas time being linked to Boxing Day. Mm. So there are several theories of origin for Boxing Day, but the particular ones I'll mention here are a few. So traditionally, a box would be put in churches on Christmas Day to collect alms and then opened to distribute to those in need the next day. So there's one idea. Another idea is that during Victorian times, it really started seeing Boxing Day made into a holiday uh, in its own right. So that was around 1871. So this was also a time when the idea of giving servants a day off to visit their families for Christmas was growing. And uh, allegedly, owners would send them off with a box to take with them to their families, often holding gifts or a bonus and sometimes leftovers from the Christmas feast. And then the last theory that I came across was the idea that a sailing ship would set sail with a sealed box containing money inside for good luck. If the voyage should prove successful and the ship safely returns to harbor, then the box was given to a priest and that box would be opened during the Christmas season to distribute the money to the poor. But okay, we need to move on to the third day of Christmas. So Lindsay, what can we expect from day three? Well, on the third day of Christmas, my true love gave to me three French hens. 
So once again, if we're going by the secret Christian meaning, these three hens could represent the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Others have said perhaps these are the three wise men or the three gifts that they presented of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, what if the French hens are just simply, well, French hens? In 1864, the lyric was temporarily changed to fat hens, and apparently the turtle doves and French hens of days two and three were sometimes switched around. Either way, both were considered quite the delicacy to be served at the dinner table. According to the website AmericanOrnthology.org, the French hen breed Bresse Gaulois is known as the poultry of kings, and they were a luxury import from France, so quite the gift. Well, what else could these hens represent? Interestingly, larger and more exotic fowl were brought in from the Orient. Hmm, from the Orient, eh? Hint, hint, wise men. And they were bred with smaller Roman chickens, and they produced a new breed. And some have suggested that perhaps this song is celebrating that. It is also believed that hens symbolize motherhood. December 27th is also the Catholic feast day of St. John the Evangelist. St. John and his brother, St. James, were called by Jesus right after Peter and Andrew to leave their profession of fishing behind and to follow him. John and James received what is arguably the coolest nickname ever from Jesus, and he called them the Boengers, <laughs> Boengers which mm. means sons of thunder. Mm. John is known as the beloved apostle, the one who laid his head on Christ's chest and heard his heart beating. It was John alone who stayed at Jesus's feet during the crucifixion, and it was to John that Jesus entrusted his mother Mary. To John, the vision of the apocalypse was revealed when a veil was lifted, and it is the common belief that Mary spent her final days before her assumption on earth with John in Ephesus. John was the only apostle not martyred and lived until a very old age. There's a very cool tradition in the Catholic Church which celebrates the the love of St. John, and it involves wine. Catholics may bring wine to church on his feast day on December 27th and have it blessed, making it into a sacramental that can be consumed on special occasions throughout the year or given to the sick. When drunk on his feast day, a toast is made to St. John, with the father of the house lifting his glass towards the mother while saying, I drink you the love of St. John. And the mother replies, I thank you for the love of St. John. And like this, the toast goes around the table. What I find even more interesting is that you can make a mulled wine called St. John's Love. And here's the recipe. Serves eight. One quart red wine. Three whole cloves. 1 16th teaspoon ground cardamom, 2 2 inch cinnamon sticks, a half a teaspoon of ground nutmeg, a half a cup of sugar. Pour the wine into a large saucepan, add the remaining ingredients, heat well for five minutes, serve hot, clinking glasses with the toast, drink the love of St. John. Doing this in front of a roaring fire makes it all the better. Why wine? Well, legend has it that there were many attempts on St. John's life, and one involved a poisoned glass of wine. Before taking a sip, he blessed it and out came a snake. After that, he went ahead and drank the blessed wine like a boss. Okay, so I think it's pretty clear here that the perfect meal for the third day of Christmas, the meal that will combine both the idea of the hens and the wine is cock oven, the hearty mm. French stew of chicken with wine and mushrooms. It couldn't be more perfect, and I recommend trying Julia Child's recipe, which is available on the PBS website, pbs.org. 
And now finally, as for a little gift idea, we look again at Good Housekeeping and they suggest the ever cute and budget-friendly succulents called hens and chickens. Oh my goodness, that the cockovin is the perfect meal. Like uh-huh. what you were saying, I never I never actually knew the connection between St. John's feast day and the wine before. Yeah. I think that story is so interesting with the snake. Yes, I had never heard of it either. And I thought I knew all the crazy old devotions and, yeah. and little traditions. I thought about I knew all the ways to get things blessed, uh, but mm-hmm. not this one. So the one article I was reading, he actually, they bring in a whole case of wine. They get the whole thing mm-hmm. blessed. And then where he stores that wine, he has a beautiful little picture of St. John near it so that they always oh. remember that, which I just think is so cool. So I promise you, I will be texting our priest friends and being like, the wine is getting blessed on that day. Yes. <laughs> And to add a little bit of fun, maybe you could throw one of those little rubber snakes at someone as they take a drink. (laughs) So memorable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, now definitely, I actually have a pile of rubber snakes. So there you go. Yep. Christmas at the liturgical. It's liturgical. Yes. Yes. So Michelle, it's December twenty eighth. What do we do for the fourth day? Mm-hmm. Fourth day of Christmas, and our true love is gifting us four calling birds. And again, the secret Christian code for the four calling birds points to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the calling part of the calling birds, I thought this was really interesting. It's um, associated with songbirds, but according to the version of the song from 1780, the word is actually collie. C-O-L-L-Y. It's for collie birds, which was an old English uh, word for coal. So it's essentially a blackbird. They're talking about a blackbird. Now, according to some of the sources I've seen, this blackbird in Europe could have referred to the black thrush, whose song is apparently quite melodious. So, I mean, whether it's collie birds, as in blackbirds, or calling birds, as in songbirds, I think both seem to fit just fine. And so uh, as for a gift idea for this fourth day of Christmas, the Good Housekeeping article we reference suggests a hummingbird feeder, which we thought was so delightful. Right, Lindsay? Yes. Imagine gifting someone that. Yeah. Because they are honestly the least threatening of birds. They're (laughs) a little hummingbird. (laughs) I can even handle those. (laughs) Oh, right, right. Well, I thought it was delightful. Yes. So although it's not likely to attract legitimate collie birds, you know, the hummingbird feeder will call some sort of bird. So we're going to go with that as the theme for the day. Now, for a day appropriate dinner, you could follow the bird meme and make a chicken pot pie, I saw Mm -hmm. suggested. And once again, I think it's just probably rather difficult to find a recipe for thrushes. So (laughs) we're just going to have to remain unabashedly basic for this one and suggest chicken pot pie. Okay, Michelle, wait. While I love a good chicken pot pie, and I really do, Mm -hmm. um, another Mm -hmm. favorite Christmas cookbook of mine, because you know I collect Christmas cookbooks, is Jamie Oliver's. And it is gorgeous. And he does uh, a turkey pot pie with your leftover turkey and puff pastry on the top. I made it a couple of years ago and it was so good so just in case anybody still by the fourth day still has some turkey laying around yeah a nice turkey pot pie that is a great idea and it still fits in with the whole Mm -hmm, theme so I love that I love that (laughs) now if you'd like to toast on the fourth day of Christmas but you're growing rather concerned that I'm going to continue with the bird (laughs) motif here (laughs) fear not let's sidestep for a moment and consider 
a last call cocktail for the fourth day of Christmas. Mm. Now, it includes light rum, sweet vermouth, pink grapefruit juice, cinnamon sugar syrup, lime juice, and a pasteurized egg white. Mm-hmm. All shaken with ice, strained, and then garnished with grapefruit zest and a cinnamon stick. Okay, that sounds amazing. It sounds yeah. amazing. Actually, I'm going to get you to just copy and paste that into a text for me <laughs> before this weekend, if you could. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. I know. I was really intrigued by everything leading up to the pasteurized egg white. Yes, but very common. I was just going to say, Mm -hmm. I didn't know that egg whites were common in cocktails, and Mm -hmm. I didn't have time to look into that further, but as you say, it it is. Yeah, it adds the froth on top of a lot of very high-end cocktails. It's actually really common. And, um, okay, this is the What Lindsay Doesn't Like episode, so on top of birds, I don't like eggs. So I'm like, Well, that's what I was going to say. Right, but it's just a tiny bit, and the alcohol kills whatever the issue is, and it just adds Mm. that really delicate froth on the top. It doesn't add anything to the taste. You can't even taste it, but it really makes it look really pretty. Okay. Oh, that's really good to know. Okay. Well, then we will definitely have to try this cocktail Mm -hmm. on the fourth day, the last call cocktail. Okay. So the fourth day of Christmas, December 28th, is actually quite a somber day in terms of its meaning, um, especially in the Catholic Church, because it's the day that we celebrate the Feast of the Holy Innocents. Now, the Holy Innocents are the children mentioned in Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 2, when King Herod orders the massacre of all male children under the age of two in Bethlehem. Now, this took place after he was deluded by the wise men, who, despite Herod's instructions to return to him to tell him the location of this newborn king they were seeking, went back home to their own countries by a different route having been warned not to share the Christ child's location with the jealous and angry Herod. So it's one of the most tragic stories we read about in scripture, and it was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah where it says, quote, A voice was heard in Ramah of lamentation and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not, end quote. So although the exact date of this massacre is uncertain, it could have taken place within two years of Jesus's birth. This is the day that the church venerates these holy little ones, and they are considered first martyrs. Uh, St. Augustine says that they, quote, were the first buds of the church killed by the frost of persecution. Mm. They died not only for Christ, but in his stead, end Mm. quote. I know. And it's just so heavy. Yeah, Yeah. it's just the most heart wrenching uh, thing to consider. And so to kind of, you know, commemorate this solemn side of observing the feast day, some churches even choose to omit the Gloria and the Alleluia of Mass Mm -hmm. to honor the grieving mothers of Bethlehem and to reflect the subdued mourning of the day. And there's also the uh, Coventry Carol, which is a song uh, that takes the form of a lullaby, and it is sung in the voice of the mothers of the poor holy innocents. And it is breathtaking to listen to. It's heart-achingly sad, but it is so beautiful. Yeah, and it's something um, I first came across a couple of years ago, and played it on repeat while weeping. I really did. And mm-hmm. my family came in the room and I just, I could barely tell them 
what this song was about. And um, the, it's based on a very, very old poem. The The tune and the notation that we hear is a more recent, which is why it has almost a modern sound to the, yeah. the way it's sung, right? Yes. Uh, but it is based on a very ancient poem. Um, but yeah, it is a lullaby for these dying children. And it is just, you know, as a mother, oh my goodness, absolutely mm. heart-wrenching. And and you and I see no reason not to pause and to feel all of the things that the Christmas season presents us yes. with, right? Um, sure, joyful merrymaking, but it's not life is not all of that. And so to pause in the middle of that, um, I think is a really powerful thing. And to tell our kids also about this, and you know, there there is something to be said for a shedding a tear in the middle of everything else that's going on as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And that they're so part of the Christmas narrative. Yeah. Right. Like, yep, what they are. what did happen? You know, it's part of the Christmas story. And, you know, not to shy away from that and to remember that these beautiful little souls are so close to Jesus mm-hmm. because they were all the same age. Like they they would have all grown up together. They were peers and they were the first ones, as St. Augustine said, to die for him and in his stead. And I just think... Yeah, it's the most poignant thing to reflect on right in the middle of the 12 days. And so it's also traditionally a day then where the church kind of focuses on children, but the blessing of children Mm -hmm. is a tradition that used to be widely celebrated in parishes where the priests would bless the children of that parish. Now, I think that there is actually a blessing of the children that was used. I've never heard of this being done before in our diocese on the 28th of December, but I would love to look that up. And then also, of course, parents are invited and encouraged on this day to bless their own children. And the it's very simple. It can be very simple. The father or the mother can place one hand on each side of the child's head and simply praise Bless you, my child, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, while marking the child's forehead with the sign of the cross with their right thumb. So, you know, I love that we kind of pause and respect and give a moment of remembrance for these holy souls. Um, But as we move on from the fourth day into the fifth day of Christmas, it's kind of fitting that even in the carol itself, in the tune, the the whole tone changes, right? And you were mentioning, who was it, Frederick Austin and his his flourish of the fifth day. So (laughs) tell us a little bit more about that. Well, yeah. So again, he composed the tune that we sing currently. He composed it in 1909 and he was the one who did the five golden rings. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's where we're at now. It is December 29th. It is the fifth day of Christmas. And did the lover really give his beloved or her beloved five rings of gold? Well, again, first of all, we'll recall that if this is a hidden Christian symbol, it would be representing the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, which are obviously more valuable than gold. But back to the literal golden rings. Well, Michelle, turns out the bird mm. theme wasn't quite finished yet. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> so some scholars have suggested that these five gold rings signify the markings on the neck of a ring necked pheasant. Now, Mm. I had to spend a very uncomfortable amount of time looking up close at photos of pheasants. (laughs) And for the life of me, I could not see rings on its neck, aside from the one white one that goes around its neck. Um, I did not see five golden rings. And frankly, I just am Mm. not looking at another photo of a pheasant from now on. So, But wait, 
Yeah. So there is there is a ring around the necks. There is the five. Same. Yeah. So there's one white yes. one that's very clear, but every scholar, I mean, I checked like 20 sources and all of them mm-hmm. reference this ring necked pheasant and say that there are five rings on the neck. And yeah, I, oh. I couldn't see them. <laughs> Interesting. It, and it's not like five pheasants. No, no. Each with a ring on their neck? Yeah, no, it is five uh, rings on the neck. And this is the one that actually there was the least amount of information, but there's actually no reference to actual golden rings. Like, it seems like all Mm. of the scholars are united in their view that this is the ringed neck pheasant that it is referring to. There is one other type of bird. I'll get to that in a second, but we'll go back. We'll just finish with the pheasant, if we will. (laughs) Sure. Um. So it is another edible bird. It was highly prized on the tables of medieval aristocracy due to its colorful plumage. Apparently, it is the ideal bird for dainty stomachs like those belonging to children, the elderly, Mm. and the infirm. But not for workmen, Michelle, because they could only digest, quote, coarse food. (laughs) Oh. Right? Those workmen (laughs) and their digestion systems. Um, (laughs) Now, there is another theory, and I feel like this one is more likely, and that it's that the gold rings are actually gold spinks. The word is gold spinks, which was an old word for tiny goldfinches, right? Which after oh. hummingbirds, I would say are the second least threatening bird on the list. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> little goldfinches. So I I don't know, we can go with the ring-necked pheasant or the goldfinches, either one. Now, mm-hmm. continuing on with our Catholic-themed macabre merrymaking, which is just the both and of our faith, uh, December 29th is the feast day of another famous martyr, one St. Thomas Becket, otherwise known as Thomas Abecket mm. or St. Thomas of Canterbury. St. Thomas was the Bishop of Canterbury. And when he took on that role, his life radically changed. Up until this point, he had long enjoyed a friendship with the king, with King Henry II, and even fought alongside him as a warrior in battle. But he moved away from his former life that was very much indulgenced with the passions um, and focused on a life of prayer and penance once he became a bishop. And this put a strain on the relationship with the king. Now, it hit its breaking point when the bishop vocally opposed the king, defending the church's rights. And this led to him fleeing England in exile to France. After a while, there was a temporary... Peace, shall we say, that between Thomas and Henry, and he felt like it was okay for him to return to England. So he returned to Canterbury to much fanfare from everybody who lived Mm. there. But he held fast to his beliefs supporting the church. Now, a bunch of meddlesome men within the church whispered into the king's ear that England would never have peace as long as Thomas lived. And so the king famously cried out, Who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? And there were four knights in the adjoining room and they overheard the king and they set out to kill the bishop. And it is a very gruesome tale. There was a lot of detail recorded about what exactly mm. happened, but they did so. They they murdered St. Thomas of Becket on the 29th of December, 1170, killing him violently in the church. The church is still there where his body lay. The story of his life and martyrdom has been passed down through the ages and can be read about in T.S. Eliot's famous play, Murder in the Cathedral, and watched, and I recommend you do this on that day, watched in the classic film Beckett from 1964, starring Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton. Now, December 29th is also known as, and Michelle, are you ready for this? 
It is oh, okay. okay. This is exciting. I'm ready. <laughs> the yes. homemaker in me is so excited. It's called Still Need to Do Day. Now, this is a day oh. to do everything that you've been putting off and you want done before the new year. So I feel oh. like it's the perfect time, right? You're a little mm-hmm. weary from all the merrymaking and you're wanting to get some like control back, do some organizing. Um, so people all over the world do this on December 29th mm. and it, they use it as their day to check off things from their to-do lists. They have this one day to do it and y'all know how much I love a to-do list. So it is known yeah. as still need to do day. Still need to do day. I feel like every day for me at this point is a still need to do day. <laughs> it's the season. That we're, it's I the, know. And, and I don't mean Christmas. Right? I know. Mean <laughs> life. Oh, my goodness. And you know what's kind of nice, too, is that we often joke that that week between Christmas and New Year's yes. is that kind of like wasteland week where nobody knows what day it is after Mm -hmm. a few days but like is it Wednesday is it Thursday like we have no idea Mm -hmm. and so I actually really like this uh, still need to do day Mm -hmm. uh, to like you said kind of get back into the swing of things just a little bit to be able to yeah pull things together uh, in anticipation for the next big day Absolutely. Now, there are a few golden ring gift ideas. And I think my favorite one came from the website, thespruce.com. And they suggested gold napkin rings. How pretty would that be to give somebody five doesn't really work. So you might want to give them six gold napkin rings. But I love that idea. Um, You could obviously give actual rings or earrings or perhaps a ring toss game that they could use next summer. Or my second favorite after the napkin rings is donuts. They suggested donuts right? Because they look Mm -hmm. like rings. Now, what about a cocktail to go with your donuts, Michelle? That's my dream night, by the way, donuts Mm. and cocktails. (laughs) (laughs) What are we drinking? Tell me more. We are drinking the golden Cadillac cocktail. You shake Mm. these three ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice and pour into a martini glass. So you use a third, a three quarters of an ounce of cream, three quarters of an ounce of white creme de cacao liqueur and three quarters of an ounce of Galliano, which is a vanilla flavored liqueur. Yep. Shake it up, pour it into a martini glass, Mm. no egg whites needed. And you've got your golden Cadillac cocktail. Oh my goodness. That sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how well it pairs with donuts. We shall find out. Perfectly. I'll let you know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And so for this, the final of this episode, the final day, we are at December Mm -hmm. 30th. So Michelle, it is the sixth day. Yes. So the sixth day of Christmas, our true love is giving us six geese a laying. And um, <laughs> where we live, there's a really big university. This is what I just thought of, uh-huh. like, as I as I mm-hmm. thought about it, that uh, makes geese notorious for us. Mm-hmm. So if you take a drive around this campus, you can expect to have to stop and wait for flocks of Canadian geese to leisurely cross the road. And when I say leisurely, they really take their time sometimes. And so all I kept thinking while I was writing out this day of Christmas was while waiting in our cars, we're just sitting here thinking, oh, these geese be laying all over my road. But (laughs) can I tell you as well, Michelle, just so people understand my trauma, I also I went to that university and I had a and I had an exam, you know, very important Mm. exam. And I was running late as I do. And I was blocked. There was a bridge over to this part of campus and there was about a hundred geese. Do you know the bridge? (laughs) And there was about a hundred geese blocking my way with their babies and their giant long necks and their giant wings and their beaks with little tiny teeth. And they were doing the sounds. And I Mm. was running towards and I in that split second 
second, I decided university doesn't matter to me. It doesn't yeah. matter. And I <laughs> turned around and I left. I never wrote that exam and I never graduated. <laughs> oh, the birds go deep for you, right? They do. Yeah. <laughs> Continue. Okay. So the secret Christian code for the six geese laying is believed to refer to the six days of creation in which God made the world and everything in it. Um, and actually, in reality, geese actually seem pretty impressive. So I was back at that website again, bestjerry.ca, <laughs> all about medieval birds. And geese can apparently smell the odor of men better than any other animal, Whoa. which I thought was very interesting. And so because of this, and due to their rather loud honking or cackling, they are credited in legends for warning the Romans... Of attacks by the invading <gasps> Gauls in ancient times. I know. Oh, okay, a little more respect. A little keep it yeah, coming. <laughs> I know. I was like, okay, geese. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll give it to you. Mm -hmm. So now for the gift giving on this day. Um, once again, I I looked at the goodhousekeeping.com suggestions. And they say to, first of all, don't get a real goose for your true love. <laughs> and we here at the Modern Lady Podcast would just like to say that we tend to agree with that. So instead, they actually suggest this really neat rapid egg cooker, which can make up to six boiled or deviled eggs all at once. And it would actually look very cute sitting on your counter while doing it. But so then on the sixth day of Christmas, what shall we eat now? Well, you could put your rapid egg cooker to work and have deviled or boiled eggs. Or you could elevate your menu with William Sonoma's suggestion of a wilted greens and gruyere frittata. And so they ask in their description of this egg-based delicacy, you know, what could be better for a holiday brunch? And indeed, I don't know what could be. So to top it all off, on our final day of Christmas before we break for part one, how shall we toast our geese? Well, care of Grey Goose Vodka. Oh, we have oh, the <laughs> I didn't see that coming cocktail. for some reason. Sorry, it <laughs> totally caught me off guard. <laughs> Surprise! Yes. Grey Goose Vodka has the answer for all our goosey needs <laughs> on the sixth day of Christmas. And they suggest the fireside cocktail, which sounds like coziness itself, with ingredients such as maple syrup, fresh rosemary, two parts Grey Goose Vodka, and topped with 2.5 parts fresh grape juice. So you just stir that, garnish with a sprig of fresh rosemary, and voila! It's an aromatic cocktail that you can sip and enjoy as you wind down. So also happening on this sixth day of Christmas is it's the Feast of St. Egwin of Worcester. Okay. Is this the first time you're hearing about St. Egwin <laughs> yes. as well? Okay. Yes. <laughs> How'd you know? I know. <laughs> well, now you have heard of him, as have I. But he was the Bishop of Worcester from the year 662 to 717 when he died. He was a fierce defender of the faith and of marriage in particular. And because of his care for and protection of the poor, the orphans, and the widows, he was really well-liked among the people. But his strict stances were not popular overall with some of the other bishops. They felt he was too strict and a little bit too harsh. So he had to defend himself against their accusations, and he actually went to Rome to appear directly to Pope Constantine himself, and the Pope ended up annulling the case against him. 
So there's this one story that I thought was really cool um, of when St. Egwin was traveling to Rome with his travel companions through the Alps. And apparently there was no water at one point to drink. Now, half of his companions mockingly suggested that he just asked God for water like Moses did in the desert, while the other half of his companions respectfully asked him to pray for water, recognizing his holiness. And the story goes that as he prostrated himself on the ground in prayer, clear water did in fact spring from a rock. So, you know, I believe that St. Egwin's feast day lands on the eve of the Feast of the Holy Family. And given his wholehearted defense of marriage and family, perhaps this would be a great night to gather with family again and friends who are like family for maybe a movie night or a game night or even just a simple meal. Really anything where you're enjoying one another and grateful for the gift of family. Okay, it's time for our What We're Loving This Week segment of the show. So Lindsay, what have you been loving this week? All right, so what I've been loving, you know this about me, and I feel bad even saying this, and I hope our listeners understand, but I don't, okay, so even though I am a Catholic woman with a podcast, as are you, I don't often listen to Catholic women who have other podcasts, and that is simply because as you know, Michelle, I don't want to confuse what I hear on theirs with thinking it's my thoughts later on on our own podcast. And mm. so I tend to read more from those versus listen to other podcasts. So oh, anyways, okay. all of that mm-hmm. to say, I every once in a while do listen to the Letters to Women podcast. And did you recommend that once as something you were loving by Chloe Langer? Oh, I'm not sure, but I have been a fan of Chloe Langer. Yes, her podcast for a while. So maybe in conversation for sure. You've definitely told me about it. And I, so I'd listened to it and I specifically listened to an interview she just did recently with Kimberly Hahn. Now for every non-Catholic who's listening, uh, you probably don't know who Kimberly Hahn is, but we all do. She's married to arguably the most celebrated um, Catholic convert uh, alive today, Dr. Scott Hahn. Mm. And um, they have an incredible story. Just briefly, if you, it's the first time you're encountering her or Scott, just read their book, Rome Sweet Home. But anyways, listening to how Kimberly spoke again about her vocation, motherhood, of being a wife, of being a homemaker, it's just, she's so inspiring. So I had put off listening to her podcast, Beloved and Blessed, for a long time. And I finally listened to it. And I specifically wanted mm. to listen to the episodes she's done on like the family dinner table about, you know, hostessing. Because as you know, Michelle, we've, we're on our second straight week of doing a family dinner, which is brand new for my family. Mm. And I was inspired to do that because of the beloved and blessed podcast. And so it's so relaxing. She's so encouraging. She's just like, she is a grandmother. So I don't think I'm going to insult her by saying she's like the grandmother you wish you had. Uh, (laughs) That is just so calm and so loving. And so, yeah, I'm sure a lot of our listeners already listen to it, but if you haven't yet, Mm -hmm. please check out the beloved and blessed podcast. Mm -hmm. She is the perfect partner for Scott Hahn, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. I just think like the two of them together cover so many bases of spirituality and Christianity and basically any topic or question you could have as living as a Christian in today's world between the two of them. (laughs) They have it covered. 100%. And she's fully educated and has this type of ministry in her own right, right? She isn't just Mrs. Mm -hmm. Scott Hahn. Like Kimberly Hahn is a remarkable woman, like you said. And so they really are complimentary. 
Mm-hmm. So what are you loving this week, Michelle? Well, I am loving the book, There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather by again. Linda Ackerson McGurk. Again, <laughs> I know. And I actually did search back into all of our previous scripts because yes. I save all of them. Yes. Um, and I've never actually recommended it really? for this section before. No, but I mentioned it a lot. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Go. Yes. And so it's been a few years since I have read There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather. But this week, I wanted to recommend the audiobook version because Mm. this is my latest love this week. Um, I've been driving around doing some errands, and this is what I've been listening to. So what I am enjoying about re-quote-unquote reading (laughs) this book is the casual and comfortable conversational style that McGurk writes in. It, It really translates well to audio. So it just feels like she's sitting there talking to me. She doesn't narrate it, but it's her words, and it feels like she's telling me about her life, which is my one of my favorite things to do, just listening to people's life stories. And so it is an interesting mix between podcast and book. Now, we've always been inspired by many Scandinavian Mm -hmm. traditions on this podcast, right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Lindsay? We've covered them all, or a lot of them anyways, from Huga to Fika to Fredigsmas. Um, well done. <laughs> I'm trying so hard here. But the one that I've always loved too from Sweden is Friluftsliv, <laughs> right? The Nordic concept of getting outdoors. Mm-hmm. So it pairs well with my growing certainty that for me, Huga is directly impacted by how much time I've spent outside first. And if you're like me and you've been staring down the upcoming winter months with a determination to get outside more, but need just a little bit of a warm, friendly encouragement, I suggest either reading or listening to Linda McGurk's book, There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather, to give you the inspiration you need. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. If you want to get in touch and chat with us about our topic today, you can find us on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com or leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at The Modern Lady Podcast. I'm Michelle Sachs, and you can find me on Instagram at mmsachs. And I'm Lindsay Murray, and you can find me on Instagram at lindsayhomemaker. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, and we will see you next time. Thank you.